Welcome to Movie Musing, a podcast where we explore the world of film and the film reveals about our world. I'm Quentin. And I'm Matt. Today we're going to discuss Martin Scorsese's latest film, the Netflix original, The Irishman. This is a big title for Scorsese. This is uh this has been a notable title in his career, and it has gotten a lot of attention. It's gotten a lot of critical acclaim, and it's been a return to form for a lot of the all-time great mob actors that we've seen. Before we break that one down, though, we want to talk about the recent Golden Globe nominees. Uh, within the last few weeks, we got the nominees named for uh, film as well as television and several other mediums. We're just going to talk about uh, the movie categories here. As uh, any regular listeners know, we don't always necessarily give the most weight to the Golden Globes, but it is often an interesting forecast of what will pop up at the Oscars. So, Matt, did you get a chance to see the nominees? I did, and something that stood out to me, and this is something that seems to be present every year, but really kind of jumped out to me most for this one, was... When you kind of look at the top of the ticket here for the Golden Globes, you see the five uh, films for Best Motion Picture Drama, and two of them haven't been released yet. 1917 and Two Popes are coming out late December, and Marriage Story really just dropped. So, And not to mention that The Irishman is a very recent film, too. So to see four of the five nominees to be films that the majority of people probably haven't had a chance to see yet is really interesting. Yeah, I think you do see that, um, uh, especially there always seems to be this this calculated thing that a lot of these big movies get dropped on Christmas Day or right around that. It, it seems that the tail end of Oscar season is literally hitting the new year. Um, I, I will say that fans of uh, A24 movies are once again going to be you know howling because a lot of the great movies of this year, uh, horror movies... Did not seem to get a lot of these uh, big nominations as people might have hoped for. Nothing by Ari Aster or Robert Eggers. Um, and then you're, getting, you're we're seeing uh, this seems like it was a top-heavy year in this in the sense that the, this was. Uh, I will tell you straight up. I think that this year was a stronger year than last year because last year was pretty uh, pretty weak overall. But it seems that a lot of the nominations are going to just a few titles uh, particularly for acting that you got a bunch for the Irishman you have uh, you have multiple for one spot in time in Hollywood um, and you're, you're seeing yeah I mean I, I think we're gonna get a few that are gonna be unexpected wins here and there but I'm just gonna read off some of the the nominees here uh, the best best motion picture in the drama category you have the Irishman marriage story 1917, Joker, and The Two Popes. I will immediately tell you right there, uh, it's funny, I don't bat an eye anymore at seeing Joker nominated for Best Drama. Uh, How do you feel about that, Matt? You know, it's interesting, because I feel I've started to come around on the movie. Like, when I came out of the theater, I didn't know what to think of it, really. I guess I kind of trended more in a negative direction, but... As time has gone on, I've actually, I feel like I've started to appreciate it more and more. And, you know, I respect Joaquin Phoenix's portrayal a lot. Like, he went all out for it, you know, as he usually does. And it's one of those that really made me think that, you know, he could be in contention for, you know, like, best, for best actor come Oscar time, let alone Golden Globes. Good and point. It, 
it is really one of those that I feel kind of encapsulates this year, particularly in the best actor category, where mm-hmm. just as you said, this has been a it was a stronger year this year, I fully agree. And yeah. I think it's something where as a result, we're gonna first for the Golden Globes, but then for the Oscars when it comes time is we're gonna be feeling the snubs a lot harder, I think, mm-hmm. for the upcoming nominations. I think so. And we'll probably see some stuff in the Oscars that did not appear uh, in the Golden Globe nominations, as as, as is tradition. <laughs> of course. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I would. What I would say is that I really just don't know what to make of the genre shifts anymore. Just because I think I enjoyed Joker. I thought it was a good movie. I thought it was well made, and I I thought the controversy for it was a bit overblown. I got what they were going for, and I thought the performance was really good. Uh, that being said, it is technically a superhero movie, and it doesn't really follow... It's not a particularly formulaic movie, but I just think in general, now you is, you inevitably have to compare it to other superhero movies that get that distinction. And I don't think it's as well-made as Black Panther. I, I would say that... I respect Joker more than most Marvel movies because it was totally different. It wasn't trying to be a, a crowd pleaser. It just happened that people liked it. But I like, and I'm fine with Joaquin Phoenix getting nominated. But again, is this best picture quality? Are we really going to continually say, "All right, we're going to keep on finding ways to get more crowd pleasing titles into uh, contention high up"? Yeah, this does ultimately feel like it's going to wind up being that, where it's uh, we're adding Joker to the Golden Globes, and presumably, let's say for the best supporting act, like or excuse me, for the Oscars in the Best Picture category, it does feel like it's going to be one that's meant to draw more eyeballs to the mm. you know to the awards show itself. Probably but, true, but it really does feel that just kind of looking at it off the bat, I feel that. The Irishman, which, you know, we'll be getting into in a moment, will be, like, running away with the best motion picture drama mm-hmm. category mm-hmm. because I feel like it's going to have a certain weight to it where, you know, it's, like, coming towards the end of Scorsese's career. You know, right. the th- like, the three leads, this is probably going to be, like, the la- some of, like, the last films, like, they make and definitely probably the last one they all make together, especially in, like, the mob vein. So it kind of has, I feel like that you know, a sort of weight of the last 20 years of, uh, or even 30 years of Scorsese's and their careers that's really going to give this movie an extra boost. Yeah. Let's briefly just uh, dip into the second major category. Uh, I always I always roll my eyes at this, but they are, there's, there's always the five nominees for Best Motion Picture Drama. Then there's five nominees for Best Motion Picture Musical or Comedy. Very strange category. Yeah, very broad, too. Yeah, I I'll always laugh at the absurdity that The Martian was the winner of Best Musical or Comedy. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, come on. Uh, yeah. Um, all right, the titles. The titles that were nominated for this, we have Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Jojo Rabbit, Knives Out, Rocket Man, and Dolomite is My Name. Very diverse category this time around, I have to say. And this, it's funny because... Yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It, are there comedic elements to it? Yes, but it's also just a fantastic Quentin Tarantino drama. It's I think I think they just were able to sell it as a comedy in this case. Yeah, yeah, it really is one where that was the one that I actually spent the most time being like, huh, like 
you know, I was trying to think back. I was like, yeah, I had like funny moments, but you know, comedy wasn't the point of it. And then, you know, uh, I haven't seen Dolomite is my name. Rocket Man slides right in with a musical. Jojo Rabbit, obviously a clear cut comedy and oh, yeah. Knives Out, you know, which was, I greatly enjoyed and was really surprised actually by how funny it really was and how it really leaned into the comedic elements of it all. Mm-hmm. Well, before we wrap up, I, I briefly want to see if there's anything else that jumps out at me. And I will say, it's cool to see Bong Joon-ho nominated for writing Parasite. I guess he co-wrote it with this uh, other person, Han Jin-won. Uh, I'm surprised he didn't get a bigger nomination than that because Roma got got acclaim at the highest level in addition to foreign language film. Uh, this is definitely one of those that should be a shoe-in for best foreign picture. Bong Joon-ho winning an Academy Award would be pretty cool. Um, interestingly, though, I, in my opinion, this this is just another year where uh, you just got amazing things stacked in one category because, wow, I mean, people are talking about A Marriage Story just because it's so well written. Parasite is a fascinating story all around. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is one of the best written films that I've seen in my entire life. And then the yeah. Irishman is just this sprawling chronicle that that flows amazingly well for something as dense as it is. This is another just absolutely stacked year. So uh, I'll be I'll be excited to see how this reflects on the Oscars. Absolutely, and I think the the parasite point is really interesting because had it come out like uh, last year, you know, you could have made the real argument that it might have had a case, but. You know, just simply seeing that in both the right, uh, the director and best screenplay categories, as you mentioned, like in its way is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and The Irishman for both, you know, mm-hmm. in both categories. So you're just like, I, you just don't see a path for it to win. And, and I would say that, uh, you know, it's probably a film that's more deserving of simply winning the best, you know, foreign film or excuse me, best foreign language film award. But, you know, I think it's one that I'm glad that it will at least get some recognition going into the Golden Globes and what shapes up to be the Oscars as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's uh, let's start talking about the main event here. Let's let's talk about what will surely be a favorite for some heavy hitting categories come Oscar season, the Irishman. So, uh, Scorsese is uh, one of the all-time greats in filmmaking, and uh, we we were talking about him recently because of the quote-unquote controversy when he was talking about superhero movies and kind of dismissing them, and uh, I, I just kind of, I found it hilarious just being on film Twitter and seeing how people were responding so emotionally to what he had said, uh, and it seemed like one of the first things that happened was basically... When, once people got defensive about superhero movies, they were just so quick to dismiss who is unquestionably one of the great filmmakers of all time and just probably somebody who knows film better than 99.9% of the population. Uh, well, you know, he's just, he's iconic. Yeah, and honestly, something like, of course, you know, uh, I took in those comments at the time just as everyone else did but to me the comments are even more interesting now having seen the irishman because you know his comments were made during the press events in the lead up to its release and what i found so interesting was that since the irishman is just such an achievement and then you know 
you consider that Scorsese was sitting on this, you know, knowing like that it came, the film came together, the performances are excellent. And then, you know, this was probably around the same time over the summer that there was all this hype for, uh, for Endgame, but like for, you know, like, and that was what was really sucking all the oxygen out of like, you know, the film going universe. And so I can see how it was something that when you consider the sort of chronology of it all, it makes sense that, you know, Scorsese would come out, you know, I guess you could say as as hard as he did against superhero films. But, mm-hmm. you know, something I was thinking as I watched The Mob was that, uh, you know, if Marvel had set up a case where the villain was, you know, not Thanos or, you know, some or Hydra, but was instead Al Capone, like Scorsese would be tripping over himself <laughs> to direct a Marvel film. <laughs> That's uh, that's funny. I, I hadn't really thought of that. Um, yeah, and it's it's funny to imagine. I, I think that the only thing that he's really shot himself in the foot with is that he seemed to come down hard against things that were getting Netflix uh, releases, i.e. movies like Roma. I don't think he ever explicitly called out titles or filmmakers. But I think he's just known to be such a staunch advocate for traditional cinema, shooting on film and theatrical releases and uh, maintaining the aesthetic of the medium that he kind of was voicing some concerns with that. I think there might have Spielberg may have as well. I could be I could be wrong, but uh, it's funny how quick he was to to compromise to do this. And again, everybody really won with this because it would have been much harder to get. Uh, this kind of a release for for the Irishman to get it made the way he would have wanted to because if they had had yes this did get released in theaters but if it had been an exclusive theatrical run it would have been cut down a lot and it would have had to they would have had to make compromises with the production because of you know recouping costs and what have you yeah and we probably would have had to wait years or for like a quote-unquote director's cut where Scorsese would be able to release the film that he actually wanted to show. This was almost a Kingdom of Heaven situation. (laughs) Absolutely. This word, you know, that's that's, uh, famous in the film community. You know, this is a movie that was an Orlando Bloom movie in the mid-2000s that was trying to capitalize off of his popularity from Lord of the Rings, and it's set as he's a Knights Templar uh, around the time of, uh, you know, Saladin and... uh, you know the fall of Jerusalem and in, in, during the Crusades era, and it's an amazingly well-made film. It's well cast, it's well acted, it's well made by Ridley Scott, but it's so fervently butchered in the editing process that they they had to scale it down to a two and a half hour film uh, because the the production company just didn't believe that it would it would be profitable otherwise. So they had to cut out entire characters. For, and things just don't make sense in the movie, and so everybody says, you know, Kingdom of Heaven. That director's cut is actually a coherent film. It's one of the few cases where the director's cut it turns a bad movie into a really good movie. So we, we can imagine had the Irishman been cut down to two hours or lopped down or whatever, it would have suffered. Yeah, and you can really, you know, even just watching, you can clearly see, like, you know, just as in my experience, probably what would have been cut down, which is that. 
probably like the first hour and a half of like the film, which you know yeah. is a lot of setup, and then the, like the final half hour or so, which deals with you know some very intense subjects relating to growing old. You know, the you could just as easily see a world where Scorsese would have been told like, "Listen, you got to cut down like this stuff to make for more mob action." You know. Yeah. Well, and I think that a mistake would have been had this story been about Jimmy Hoffa first. Yes. Which obviously, you know, and, and Al Pacino portraying Jimmy Hoffa, he's just this iconic, iconic guy from the 50s and 60s, uh, you know, this this union delegate leader on a national scale, as they describe him in the movie, you know, second most powerful man in the country next to the president, perhaps a bit exaggerated, but there seems like some truth to that in the sense that just the kind of political sway the guy had and how well known he was and how many connections the guy had. Uh, rumored to have swung some very key elections. Obviously, he was a very important part of this film, but at the end of the day, it had to be about Robert De Niro's Frank Sheeran. Yeah, and that's something that I found really interesting as the film went along, because of course, you know, the film, as it opens, you know, and it starts to go through, you, you know, and of course, Fred Sheeran is essentially the is the main character and you know we are first met to joe pesci's character who is a uh, who is someone in the mob and what i found so interesting to sort of speak to joe pesci's uh, character broadly is it was really refreshing to see a very quiet performance by him you know mm-hmm. something that was much more reserved and sort of observant instead of you know, like the uh, loud roles that he, of course, had in yes. Goodfellas and then essentially right. played a parody of in the Home Alone franchise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so to see him so quiet in this film throughout and yet still just like radiating the power of his position within the mob is something that I found really interesting and stood. It was noticeable at first. And then it was even more noticeable after uh, De Niro's character is introduced to Jimmy Hoffa. And then when we return to Joe Pesci's character, you're just like, wow, now this is an excellent, These are this is great choices by Pesci here. I don't think people always appreciate how difficult it is to have a powerful and memorable quiet character performance. And I think that's a big reason why one of my favorite Joe Pesci performances is actually in Raging Bull. And that's alongside De Niro. And he's basically... Uh, this supporting character, he's he's the brother of of the boxer, and he's just kind of quietly doing damage control constantly and looking out for his brother, even though he knows that he's burning himself out and he's being he's making all these poor decisions. And you really feel for the guy. Uh, there's this level of of assuredness with it, um, and it's hard to 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 put that out there. And and you're totally right. People remember when they think of Joe Pesci, they think of him in Goodfellas. They think of as you know this boisterous, terrifying guy. But uh, this was it was the perfect role for him in this. And that's so in- interesting too when you consider it, because then when you pair his performance and compare it with Al Pacino's as Jimmy Hoffa, where Jimmy, like Al Pacino is essentially just taking the notes from the Joe Pesci playbook in Goodfellas, where he's this, like portraying Jimmy Hoffa as 
you know, like always loud, always boisterous, even in private moments where they could have, you know, like taken some liberties with how he was portrayed. They still have him always going at like 100%. And, you know, like the case in point is when, you know, in the encounter they have with the uh, mobster in Miami, where just because he's, you know, five minutes late later than, you know, what, you know, uh, Jimmy Hoffa would have normally accepted, like suddenly that derails the whole meeting and, you know, starts the snowball that eventually leads to, you know, the climactic events of the film. It's something that really draws contrasts between the two main characters in Frank's life. And it's really interesting to see two such different individuals portrayed alongside Frank. And I think it's a credit to the film because it really helps differentiate the two and sort of position them where they are pulling at, you know, Frank's character from both yeah. directions. Right. No, that's a good point. Uh, there, I, you know, I'm sure if I really sat down and thought about it, there are, there, there probably are examples of this. But when you, historically speaking, there aren't a ton of movies where the main character is essentially a pawn between yeah. the supporting characters. Uh it's very interesting or you know if it is the case it might be that they're totally influenced and inspired by a key person but you know the the, the whole crux of the movie is this conflict uh where basically you know de niro's frank sheeran ends up getting involved with the mob and basically is he gonna who is he going to continue to stay loyal to the local mob or is he going to kind of is he going to elevate and is he going to join Jimmy Hoffa's cadre, even though they're all running in the same circles, but they're pulling in different directions? Uh, how do you balance that while also going out for your family at the end of the day? And is it worth it? Yeah, and that's really interesting when you mention uh, his connection to the family at the end there, because the F- Frank's family is also something that plays a i will say maybe not as active a part of like the film as maybe it necessarily should have been to sort of add like that third party to like this sort of uh, interpersonal drama but you are keenly aware especially by the end of the of the fam of like his family particularly his uh, daughter peggy who's the older uh older peggy is played by anna paquin yep. where you become particularly particularly aware that as the dust of the you know action between the mob and Jimmy Hoffa fades and Frank is just left alone, he is keenly aware that by essentially neglecting his family in that time, like they want nothing to do with him. And well, so that let me it, uh, let me oh, jump out uh, let me jump out at a point that you that you were alluding to, uh, and this is just kind of from a production and writing standpoint. Let's let's just go straight at it here. Do we think that it was a valid choice of the narrative to make this just very centered on the major players here to the point that the women are just kind of off in the side in this man's world, which to a degree is very much how these people are? Or is that an oversight of a movie like this? Is this a, this is a criticism that Scorsese and, and other filmmakers of his ilk have gotten in the past. I think he's redeemed himself because he's absolutely made movies with strong female characters but does this movie suffer because of that you know it's one of those where i feel that i wish i had seen more from the anna paquin character just to sort of 
have some sort Academy of Academy Award of, winner Annie, Anna Paquin too. Yeah, exactly. Just to sort of have some grounding of Frank in his family life sort of throughout because Scorsese clearly portrays Peggy both when she is a child all the way up through when she's an adult as, you know, an active observer to what her father's doing, but then she never really gets a chance to comment on it. And so when she and her family, but really essentially her, are only allowed to play mm. a role in his life when I guess you could say his quote-unquote relevance has come to an end. Only then is Scorsese interested in, per, in exploring the aspects of family. That's something that I could see as being a shortcoming, but at the same time, you also, I also understand the historical context of what, what you know, the topics that the movie is dealing with, which is you know the high-level relationship between you know. Uh, the mob and you know Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters, where it's something where it it was really a man's world, yeah. you know, so, like sort of thing. So it's it's <clears throat> one of those where I see both sides, but I feel at the end I do come down on the side, thinking that I feel we had got wish we had gotten more of his Frank's family, particularly the Peggy Anna Paquin character, just to sort of ground and maybe even provide a. You know, kind of like, if anything, maybe just an audience stand-in so that we could, you know, see someone else comment on his actions. Yeah. Now, it's where it bears repeating that this is an adaptation, this screenplay. Uh, they, this was this was based off of the, the novel I Heard You Paint Houses. And, um, you know, I, this is this, – it is ultimately nonfiction what the source material is, is coming from. It is probably – there's some conjecture – but it's uh, it, it, it's tough to to jump into it and, and say like you know we want to check off these different boxes when you want to get something that's authentic and yet yet you know if you're going to make a film that is three and a half hours long and you're doing it on your terms like this basically I think that it would be you you would have he would have had it had this movie been cut down shorter. I could I could write more of a ticket off to this narrative for for not portraying the family as much when they really are they are the key tension of the of the consequences and the drama that are really affecting the character of of Frank Sheeran. Yes, it is about the deeds that he's doing and yes it is about the choices that he makes with the mob and Jimmy Hoffa. But there they, it goes off in so many different directions and and vignettes frankly to tie together his narration that's telling the story of the choices that he made and if the real theme and takeaway is supposed to be that he is suffering consequences for the thing that he was that was initially his motive i think the movie would have benefited from having more scenes and more dialogue with his daughters and his wife I think so too, particularly when the violence that is particularly enacted on individuals or threatened on people in this movie, it's often directed as saying that they will go after you or your family. But since we haven't really spent any time with Frank's family, like that really, like the impact of those threats doesn't necessarily land. There it is. That's that I think this is a valid criticism of that film. I think there are times where it is misguided because at the end of the day, a story is just trying to tell the story, right? But in a case like this, if it actually is relevant and it was just an oversight, I think that is a valid criticism. I agree. 
And, you know, sort of uh, conveying off of that, do you think that there are any other valid criticisms of the film that really stuck out to you? Um, well... Well, that I've seen, uh, and perhaps perhaps you have feelings about this, the use of CGI to de-age uh, and age characters in this film had mixed responses. I personally was very impressed by it. Uh, it's a little... We've seen a little bit of this before. You know, we have, if we have extreme cases, like in Rogue One, uh, to portray Grand Moff Tarkin or to or you know a young young Carrie Fisher's Princess Leia by, by people that are not those those folks. But you've also had recent titles like uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Two. They de-aged Kurt Russell. They de-aged uh, Samuel L. Jackson in uh, Captain Marvel. And it's helpful when you have someone who's had a career uh, in front of a camera where you have lots to draw from. Uh, I thought they did a very good job de-aging a lot of these guys, but I had heard some folks criticize uh, the job they did on Joe Pesci, uh, a little Uncanny Valley. Did you have strong feelings about that? You know, it's interesting because overall, I think my take was similar to yours in that I was, you know, like broadly impressed with the CGI. I think that uh, two really stuck out to me. The first one is, it's kind of funny, but it was something I couldn't get over. It felt like Al Pacino's hair is Jimmy Hoffa. The way they de-aged him, his hair was like always like weirdly perfect. Like interesting. It, it, it always felt like it, it was like fake to the degree that it was, you know, it was always looking just absolutely perfect. And I mean, then again, Jimmy Hoffa is a public figure. I guess you could mm -hmm. sign it off to that. But uh the one CGI that I would say of the whole film, which broadly I thought did a good job with it. I thought uh, Robert De Niro's CGI was a bit hit and miss because I know when, uh, you know, essentially when the film opens and we meet him as a truck driver, which we presume is in the uh, early 50s and, you know, up to the point where he uh, goes and like beats up like the uh, local grocery store owner on the street. It just doesn't feel like he's a, a young person at all. And it feels like the, the CGI isn't really able to de-age him as effectively as you'd want it to and maybe the most glaring instance was uh, a very brief flashback to world war ii where you know mm. uh de niro is presumably uh in his yep. 20s at that point yep. but he still looks like a like a 40 year old man that's a good point that's yeah p perhaps fair i i think it's telling though that scorsese himself said that he thinks that cgi is going to be overtaking makeup in the long term whatever he saw he must have been very happy with it and it probably uh was more economical uh for for shooting purposes uh there are definitely filmmakers that lean on it heavily for different things uh like david fincher when he does uh he does a lot of crime movies and he finds that for, it's much simpler to shoot something anticipating CGI blood as opposed to staging something and uh, reproducing something over and over again manually and having to clean up and do what what have you. So I, I think with something as com complex and important as faces, you know, if they had just butchered it, I think that would be a laughing point of the film. But I don't think they butchered it. I think it was more just like I'm seeing so, like it's slight a slight distraction. But for the story that they were trying to tell, and with all the, it would have been different if all the the principal cast had been younger, you know. Yeah, I agree, and I think that my, uh, you know, my slight critiques of like uh, the 
uh, Al Pacino and De Niro notwithstanding, I thought they overall did a really good job. And I was impressed that it held up for essentially the entire movie. Not just that they are CGI, you know, doing CGI for these characters at one point in their lives, but for spanning decades. And the fact that I rarely stopped and thought, this is like so distracting that I am just utterly out of this. It's really a credit to not just the film and Scorsese's ability to, you know, make it look convincing or help it make it look convincing, but also that the technology is at a point that we can be there. Yeah. And just about just as far as the content of the movie goes, because I mean, we, we've, we've alluded to this, but I think I, I have to rave about the pacing of this film. It's one of the few movies I've seen that is well over three hours that did not feel like it dragged like at a certain point yes i i was uh, you know watching a long movie and was feeling it but it was akin to me watching something like lord of the rings where it's like yeah it's a long movie but i'm not bored watching this at all that's really really hard to do yeah and honestly i had a really interesting interesting experience you know with the length of the film because i watched it in uh two sittings like oh which theaters oh yeah <laughs> Yeah, so, um, what was it? Yeah, it, it was the one where they were doing Lords of Arabia, too. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. And, uh, but, um, oh, what was I going to say? Uh, oh, yeah, so, uh, actually, it was interesting because where I stopped watching The Irishman was, uh, at the hour 20 mark, you know, for the first sitting. And it was really interesting because I thought up to that point that the movie was lagging a little bit. And I, you know, came away from the first sitting being like, man, it felt like we haven't really done a whole lot. And it had felt like there wasn't a whole lot, you know, like that had really been grabbing my attention. And so when I sit, sat down for, you know, like the my second sitting with some trepidation, knowing I had two plus hours left, I was like, oh, man, like this, this could, you know, not be that great. But then as soon as I sat down and watched like the last two plus hours of the film, I was like, this is incredible. I cannot stop watching this. Yeah, I, I would agree that the first act definitely takes its time. Uh, I think I was just in the mood to watch it, but I could definitely see I could definitely see that being a, a criticism, which is what I actually feel about Goodfellas. I think Goodfellas is the opposite. I think the first two at the first two-thirds of, of Goodfellas is amongst the greatest cinema ever made. And it's not that the third act is bad, but more just that it kind of starts to slow down. Uh, and in that way, I just have always found that I zone out a little bit at the end of that movie. So, uh, you know, you can still you can still have a, you know, a masterpiece film where the pacing is not all going to be like, you know, a taut hour and a half Flick. If you're doing a long movie, I, I don't I don't really know how one would do that necessarily. Yeah, you know it's really interesting that you bring up like the uh, you know your you know how you feel that there were shortcomings with the third act of Goodfellas because thinking of uh, Scorsese's other mob, you know mob movie by the decade, The Departed from last you know you from mean, oh you mean The Departed yeah from the the Departed. You, you see that that film actually, it feels like, has second act problems because 
it gets the film kind of gets tied up with this sort of like deal for like microchip processors or, or something and you're like this feels entirely out of like what we're really trying to do here and you know like the movie does such a good job in its early portion like setting up like the uh the cat and mouse between you know like the mob and the cops and then by having that you know like a you know confrontation come to a head in the third act but you know like the second act it's just you know, you're like, what? Why does this? Why is this at the level of relatively small-time gangsters in Boston? No, it's a good point, though, because when you think about it, he's kind of telling different stories in a lot of these examples. The at the end of the day, you know, it is always one byline narrative. Where in The Irishman, it's all the story that Frank Sheeran is telling you. In in the in Goodfellas, it's all Ray Liotta's character telling you that he always wanted to be a gangster. This was the path that he took. But that being said, you take something like Goodfellas, the first two-thirds of it are kind of his rise and inevitable fall in the mob. The third act is just basically everything just going horribly wrong and just getting drawn out. Uh, and then, you know, in, in The Departed, it's just explaining the background and setting up the stakes. You're getting to know the characters, and it all pays off eventually. But it has to show... Uh, you know these escalating issues with the department and with that with that mob group. So I feel like, in that regard, it, one might you know if you're being superficial and you don't really appreciate the genre, it can be very easy to dismiss these as just be like you know it's just a bunch of guys cussing and shooting things up. Uh, but there's there's a lot that's going on in these. There's a lot that they have to to, to pull through. Yeah, and it really. It is interesting because it feels like The Departed is a different film from Goodfellas and The Irishman, whereas it feels like The Irishman is definitely like it shares a lot of the same DNA as Goodfellas. And something that really stood out to me was that Goodfellas in its own way through like a Ray Liotta's narration tries to be a bit of a, uh, a history of the mob too, like sort of you know, pointing out characters and, like, what their exploits were or this how they were killed. This is a Getty or whatever. Yeah, and, and the Irishman takes that to, like, a whole nother level where, you know, Frank is essentially actively narrating, like, the history of the mob from the point that he entered it to essentially when he got out. And it does so by specifically, like, freezing the movie on a character introduced and then just stating how they died and what day it was. Right, 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 right. And it's something incredibly jarring because, you know, The Irishman is, even though it has, like, you know, it's three central characters, below the three characters, it's essentially an ensemble piece. And so we are being, like, introduced and reintroduced to these characters who, you know, Scorsese in a little vignette has already shown us how they die. And for me, the, the most striking one was... Um, I forget the context of how we're introduced to him, but he's the guy who is ultimately in the car with uh, uh, Jimmy Hoffa and Frank oh, yeah. as they are driving to Frank's assassination. And we get like, when we're first introduced to him in the first act, we get a flash forward to him committing essentially the crime he is quote unquote most known for. And then when we finally arrive at the point in the movie where we're introduced to that character again, we have a flashback to that flash forward. 
that's yeah i there's so much i i i i totally forgot about that there's just there's so much that that happens in this film uh i i didn't even really give that much thought i think after the they they did the freeze frame a few times with the with the different people i just kind of just was along for the ride but it is an interesting decision to do that for sure and i will yeah. say you know i agree you know, obviously there's just these are just these are huge I mean, just like some of some of the best to ever do it, who are the leads in this film. But the supporting cast is really, really good as well. Oh yeah, and, and not to say not for nothing that it's yeah. a ensemble piece. Like, like the entire supporting cast, is, I thought it is incredible. Like, I thought I really loved Ray Romano as the sort yeah. of mob lawyer character. I thought he he was great in every scene he was in. Yep. Oh yeah, and they had Harvey Keitel. He's only in, I think two scenes early on but he's great in them and they had uh i think i recognize bobby cannavale or whatever you however you say it card uh, oh yeah yeah he shows up for essentially he shows up for essentially one scene where he yeah. just you know frank delivers him some steak and then we never see him again imagine being you know he's he's a guy who he's 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 quickly gaining credibility as this amazing uh younger guy who's doing these mob roles and so just to have the somebody can just flip a switch and have you uh acting next to a younger de niro at this point in time is pretty cool yeah absolutely and it i imagine that uh you know if any actor gets a call from you know scorsese saying they want you to be in his film then you you immediately sign up no matter how few lines you get and that's why everybody wants to work with scorsese i think that you know his movies have been and always will be i think uneven in some regards but i think that's because he's just so committed to doing every scene to its absolute potential and that's what any good director would do but i think that with Scorsese, there's something that's different. There's something that feels different when you're watching a scene of a Scorsese film. And it feels like each one of them could be a film within itself. And and that starts to translate to how the overall movie feels. And one example of this is that uh, he doesn't typically have a huge hand in editing his movies, but invariably that stage comes about, and editors will say, hey, look, we got to talk about these two things right here. There's a continuity error. But the first thing that Scorsese will always say that unless it's so glaring that we have to reshoot it, prioritize emotion. And so I think that's why his movies are so visceral. They're so vivid. He's not obsessed with the technical craft of it. He's obsessed with it, with you feeling it. And so even if you're a small character in that film, uh, it's such an opportunity. Yeah, and th- and that's that's really interesting. And it it also makes you, you know, it almost it might have seemed before like maybe I was like bagging on, uh, you know, like, Scorsese essentially incorporating a, you know, essential history of the mob alongside, you know, his characters. But I actually found it to be something really engaging because you get the sense and we, of course, are introduced to De Niro as an old man who is essentially like narrating this entire thing to us as in, you know, the old folks home. But we also cut back to him as an older person, you know, explaining to us, the audience, someone who you know, presumably walked in with no real knowledge of who he was or what he did. And so he, of course, has to explain, you know, to us, like, the significance of who's who and, like, you know, what's going on. So I, you know, like, found it to ultimately work in the end. And 
you know, I, I think I might have gone off topic for a little bit, but to go to your the point you were mentioning with emotion, uh, something that really stood out to me in the film was uh, I wound up watching the movie with the subtitles on, and it was really interesting because since Scorsese made this film for Netflix, Netflix presumably just plugged the script directly into the subtitles. Mm. And what you find is that a lot of times the subtitles don't actually match what the characters are saying in the movie. Huh. And it's what and the essential things that are different is that the characters are improvising more they're adding things like you know or it's like you see how it you know like things like that like interjections and it's interesting because you would consider that there are probably a lot of directors out there that are just saying you know stick to the script say it how it's written but scorsese and you can see it simply in like the divergence between subtitle and you know actor that they are given a lot of freedom to like deliver these lines and what feels like the most natural way. I, I totally agree. And I think that that was, uh, that's something that Woody Allen was especially well known for, uh, particularly because he also wrote the, the scripts, but the first thing he would say to people is like, well, get the, get, get, get the line across this way, but also you don't have to say the line. It's it just, it's so, it's so interesting because these are all these different parts that paradoxically, you know, writing just the right thing is what gets you the right line for a scene, but also not saying that could be just as, as good. Having somebody who is just one of the all time masters at that, those get you where you want to go yeah and and i think it is truly a credit to like the film and everyone you know from like a you know like main actor to like small part it's something where you can feel like everyone's invested and that they're all like there to you know like deliver their line or perform their part in the best way possible and it's something that really stands out when you have three and a half hours worth of film and there isn't a single person I saw in the whole production who where I'm like, oh, they're just mailing this one in. <laughs> well, the last thing that I want to bring up for this movie is that after I watched this, uh, and particularly, you know, the last half hour of it, I, I had experienced so many emotions during this movie. I was, you know, I was intrigued. I, you know, there were moments of levity I thought were funny. There were, there were, there were some, some moments of camaraderie I even appreciated. But overwhelmingly, this was a very sad story. And I think that, in a way, uh, this is very much the unforgiven of, of, uh, of Martin Scorsese's filmography. He'll always be remembered first and foremost as as a, as the a master of, of the gangster genre. But this is one that goes out of its way much like the film Unforgiven being a western. Uh, this this does the same thing in that genre and it's really just about the consequences that this man has to live with for the choices that he made. And, you know, you'd always have people's undoing in Scorsese's other films, but a lot of the time, you know, you, you might think like, you know, had XYZ swung a different way, they would have won. And part of this was, was the, you know, his fault and her fault. Like, but in this one, you just kind of feel like just the sheer decision to go down this path, there was no good way this could have ended. Yeah, and that's something that I find really interesting like when you compare it with like a like a unforgiven in that regard because when you consider unforgiven like you know Clint Eastwood's character is dealing with like his past but in a way he gets to redeem himself to a degree by you know like confronting the villains 
But De Niro is not afforded that opportunity in this film. He simply outlives everyone that could hurt him. But what he finds on the other side is that, you know, because he had neglected his family, there's no one there who wants to associate with him at all. But then, you know, something that I found, a scene that I found really particularly interesting at the end of the film during that half hour span where they're diving into this topic is when the two FBI agents show up and they're looking like they're trying to like reopen the case and like get him to like flip on like the Jimmy Hoffa murder and you know they give like a little speech and you think you know maybe he'll actually do it but then he just chooses not to and you're just left wondering why like why why doesn't he like do this and it's something that's all the more tragic for it yeah and you feel like he just has to keep lying to himself in different ways because he just wouldn't be able to live with himself otherwise he has these heartbreaking scenes where he's trying to reconcile with his daughters and they i think pretty much realize that he was the one who killed jimmy hoffa they just nobody has ever said it and uh he's just he wants to he, he tries to apologize to them and and one of them just says for what and just essentially hoping he's going to allude to that but he just talks about well i wasn't around i wasn't a good father and this and that uh and obviously that that crushing scene where he calls jimmy hoffa's wife on the phone it's some of the best acting i've seen in a long time some of the best in de niro's career like you cannot write how painful that scene was yeah and the and the scene just keeps going to like like it just it doesn't stop and it's just it just hurts watching the whole thing and you and you know knowing that you know frank having been a guy in the mob and like you know like essentially like a hitman who we have seen in the film kill many people and you know from the montage of him throwing guns into like the ocean it's known that he's probably killed a, a lot of people we get the sense that when he kills Hoffa, it's the first time where he experiences consequences in his own life for taking a life. Well, he loved Hoffa. He loved him. He saw him as a, I mean, he looked up to him immensely. Absolutely. And so it, it, it creates such like a captivating moment because here's this person who he's, you know, essentially like killed this like man who's so close to him, but he also like doesn't know how to behave in this circumstance like he doesn't think to call his wife and like you know like fill her in on what's going on like he acts incredibly defensive around his family when his family learns the news and you really get the sense that you know it, it's a man who has been like responsible for so much death in his life but has never actually had to deal with the consequences of his actions that should wrap up our discussion on the irishman this is a high point in Scorsese's career. Uh, everybody should check this one out. It's on Netflix, and uh, I would I would expect this to get some Oscar acclaim, and deservedly so. This was uh, this was a treat. If you like what you heard, you can check out more of our work. We are on SoundCloud.com, as well as iTunes and anywhere that you can get podcasts. You can like us and follow us on Facebook and Twitter and read a written work on medium.com. Thanks so much for listening.